Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Matt Watson, Vice President of Energy Transition at Environmental Defense Fund. The Environmental Defense Fund is a nonprofit that uses science to guide initiatives to make the environment healthier and safer for all. Today, we are going to be talking about a mac. We are going to be taking a macro look at methane and specifically the wasted methane or leaking methane. So, Matt, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me in the audience your background and a quick introduction to the Environmental Defense Fund. Sure. Well, thanks first uh, for having us here. This is fun. Glad to be here in the middle of a busy Sarah week. Um, so, Environmental Defense Fund, EDF, is an environmental NGO. Our roots are in the U.S., but we're actually a, a global NGO now. So, we have, I don't know, about 1,300 people that are working in, I believe, more than 30 countries now in the four corners of the, of the globe. And we're fundamentally a um, climate-oriented organization. I work for our energy transition group, and what I do is oversee our global methane advocacy um, that's chiefly focused on energy sector methane emissions, um, and in particular, the oil and gas sector, uh, where really the, the largest opportunity lies for um, reducing methane emissions, capturing uh, this methane, which is natural gas, and uh, getting it to market uh, for some productive use instead of going into the atmosphere. And, if you want, we can talk a little bit about why it's uh, so important from a climate perspective to make sure it doesn't go into the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, we definitely want to talk about that. And I guess before we jump in, because there was a recent report that, or a recent study that EDF commissioned S&P Global to complete. But before we get into that, let's let's answer that why of why is it so important? Why is methane I guess kind of why is methane a hot topic right now? Why are we all talking about methane emissions all of a sudden? Right. So um, methane is a greenhouse gas. It's also, you know, the core component of natural gas. It is natural gas, right? And as a greenhouse gas, it's extremely powerful at trapping heat. If you look at it over the near term, say over the next 20 years, it is 80 times more powerful, roughly 80 times more powerful than CO2 as a heat trapping gas. So it's, it's really kind of an accelerant on the climate change problem. But therein also lies the opportunity because in addition to being a very powerful greenhouse gas, it's also relatively short-lived in the atmosphere. So after you know, 10, 15 years or so, it degrades in the atmosphere. 
and, as opposed to a CO2 molecule that'll bounce around up in the atmosphere for centuries. So when you reduce methane emissions, you can actually have an immediate impact on the warming that we're experiencing today. And in fact, uh, about roughly 30 percent of the warming we're experiencing today is driven by methane emissions. We reduce methane and we can actually slow that pace of global warming immediately. Uh, it's also an opportunity because it is a commodity. It's a valuable commodity. So when, you know, right now, if we let it go into the atmosphere, we're causing uh, a, a major climate problem. But if we capture it and get it to market, hey, that's an energy solution. And, and we're talking about that in the context of a global energy crisis. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, as you pointed out, we are here. We are recording at Sarah Week. And you will be on a panel tomorrow talking about this whole methane mitigation idea and specifically focusing on this this report that that y'all had commissioned now anybody who is here at Sarah week of course should have gone to your presentation but I realize the rooms are small and even though I'm sure it's going to be standing room only not everybody's going to be able to make it in there so let's go through a quick recap of kind of what you're going to talk about tomorrow for those that aren't here and for those that maybe couldn't get in the room. Uh, sure. And actually, just this morning, I'm just now coming from another roundtable where uh, the results of this report really were the launching point for uh, a larger conversation. So it's, it's an important report. And we asked uh, S&P Global Commodity Insights to do this report because, well, let, let me back up. So we've known for a long time that there is a lot of methane going into the atmosphere through venting, leaks, and flaring in the oil and gas industry. The uh, International Energy Agency has put out several reports now, and the numbers that they talk about are typically in the range of 200 and plus, 200 plus billion cubic meters per year that's being wasted into the atmosphere. Uh, that's globally. What we wanted to know, um, you know, as we were looking at the energy crisis that was brought on by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is how much gas could we get to market quickly and at a profit in order to help alleviate the energy crisis, right? Because, you know, methane, it is both a climate solution um, and an energy security solution. Folks recognize that, so we wanted to know, as, as a practical matter, how much gas could we get to market quickly just by capturing this methane. So what S&P did is they looked at six key regions around the world um, that are already directly connected to the, to the global gas market because of the export capacity. They identified um, the um, uh, they asked, they they come up with, came up with some some rough but decent estimates about the methane that was being lost to venting leaks and flaring. They looked at infrastructure, they looked at costs, and um, produced a set of results that um, r really were quite startling. What they found was that. Um, they identified about, I want to say it was about 112 billion cubic meters of gas that was being lost. And of that, they identified that roughly 70, 80 BCM of that gas could be captured at uh, a positive net present value. So at a profit, right? 
um, considering all-in costs. And they found, when they started to look at um, infrastructure and other barriers, they found that about half of that could be brought to market within a couple of years. So, you know, call that 40 BCM. Now, for... Um, just for a frame of reference for those for whom, you know, billion cubic meters doesn't mean, mean anything, Europe was importing about 150 BCM from Russia before the invasion, right? That's virtually all gone now. Uh, so 40 BCM represents, you know, more than a quarter of the um, pre-war Russian imports to Europe. So that is a staggering number, the idea of being able to get 40 BCM to market today or within the kind of next year or two and that comparison to the amount that was being produced from Russia being 150 BCM now that these are these are very big numbers we can see the percentages just out of curiosity and for for the people who may think in imperial units do you know off the top of your head what that conversion is from BCM to BCF or maybe MCF? Yeah, roughly speaking, um, one BCM is about 35,000 MCF. So it's a lot of gas. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty significant. Now the, you said flares, leaks, and venting. And venting. Does the report talk about what percentages there are for each of those, what that breakdown is? It does. It, um, it identifies in some of the backup materials, um, you know, at a country-by-country basis, um, what the estimates are. And these estimates are basic, are come off of data that's generated by a couple of different um, uh, resources out there. But the primary one is the International Energy Agency, right? So these are these are rough es- estimates. They should be considered directionally correct. One of the issues that is um, <clears throat> a big topic of conversation right now is monitoring, reporting, verification, actually going out there and getting empirical data. So I think what this, what this report does is um, helps point people in the right direction. What I can say at, at a high level is that... Um, the highest return opportunities in terms of, in terms of an MPV are going to be in the flaring space, mm-hmm. right? That's where you can capture a whole lot of gas um, from a relatively small number of sources and get it into a pipeline. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Now, speaking of flaring, I think right now and and the the common rhetoric that you hear from the oil and gas industry is that it. When you're flaring, it's it is literally burning money. Yep. So they don't necessarily want to be flaring. It's almost because of because of something in the operations that that flare is actually out there. Is there what kind of thoughts or or I guess comments on that do you have? And does the report talk about to Sorry. I guess to to point out the the economic value of building out the infrastructure as opposed to just flaring? Yeah, so it's, um, there are a few different reasons why companies end up um, flaring this gas and, and in some cases flaring truly obscene amounts of gas, right, given that it's a scarce and valuable resource. Um, 
and it's different in different places. So let's take uh, the Permian Basin in um, West Texas and Eastern New Mexico, right? Um, fundamentally, the issue there is that that gas is coming up as associated gas, right? It's produced alongside oil, and the producers are really going after the oil, which is a high, uh, higher value commodity, right? And so the gas is um, kind of viewed as a waste product, but really what it comes down, down to is uh, the gathering and takeaway infrastructure is not um, always there, and the question is, okay, well, why isn't it there if if it's a positive, if it would come in at a positive NPV to go ahead, build that infrastructure, get that gas to market? And really, that's a question of uh, the opportunity cost of capital, capital right? Um, what's your return on that investment versus a return on an alternative investment, right? And I'm going to just use some kind of made up but directionally correct numbers here if you can say make a four or five percent return by capturing that flared gas and get it to market uh, and your shareholders are expecting expecting you to get an 18 percent return by drilling the next well well i mean you know that's what you're going to do right so um it's profitable but if you can make a profit uh, a higher profit somewhere else that's free that's frequently what companies will do. So this comes down to um, a both a policy question and a corporate governance question. You know, there are companies that have decided um, we're going to capture this gas, we're going to eliminate leaks, we're going to eliminate routine flaring, and we're going to do that because it's part of our, um, our corporate strategy. It's the right thing to do. Um, a lot of companies aren't doing that. There's also a policy question. You know, the uh, the US EPA and the Bureau of Land Management are um, uh, in the middle of some rulemaking processes, and we'll see how they do on this. But you know that they may decide to really clamp down on that flaring. So that's a, that's a US example, right? Mm-hmm. In other places, you may run into issues um, where the, um, the price value is insulated, right? So b- based on, um, how mineral ownership works and concessions work, right? So in there are parts of the world where a company that has a concession may have a right to produce and profit from the production of the oil, but does not own the, the rights to, to the gas at the same time. So, you know, there, there are other things that trip it up, but fundamentally, it's a um, it's a question of companies being willing to um, accept a lower rate of return than they could get for some alternative investment. Hmm. That's a a very interesting and and relevant point because I think there's I so my day job is geothermal exploration. I'm the geothermal lead for podcaster by night. Yeah, podcaster by night, yep. geothermal geologist by day. All right. But the you got a cape? <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't often wear capes in podcasting. Okay, <laughs> but I would like to think I am somewhat of a superhero. You, My it, son thinks I am. Yeah, you seem like one. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Go anyway. Ahead. So, with geothermal, that is also one of those things that we I did a project about five years ago, and it was all about generating, using hot water to generate cool water 
to then generate more electricity through the cooling process of, of something. Now, with that whole thing, we were estimating anywhere from about a 10 to 15% return, but this was for a chemical facility, and they could they have a, a standard where there's one piece of equipment that they know they can buy, they've got the room for it, it's in their five-year plan, and they know without a doubt that that piece of equipment will return 18 to potentially 25% rate of return. Yeah. And there it becomes economics. You can, you can make something that is better for the environment, still is a positive return, same as getting this natural gas out of the ground and getting it to the market, but ultimately it, you have others that you have to answer to, and they, they are more focused on the percent of return, not the, the almost larger benefit. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a very similar situation, and and I think it's kind of a difference between um, short term and long term thinking, right? Uh, you know, the um, the war in Europe is um, tragic. It sort of undersells it, um, and it's producing um, you know a very chaotic energy landscape. And one that um, is generating sometimes seemingly contradictory responses, right? Both accelerating the transition to cleaner energy and also, um, you know, uh, causing a rapid increase investment in traditional energies. Um, One of the things that's coming out of that, though, I think, is that that people are looking at this issue uh, with more open eyes than they have in the past. You know, people talk about the energy trilemma, right, which is climate security and energy transition, um, the security of energy supply, and then ensuring energy affordability and energy access. Right, and methane capture is the one thing that I can think of that hits square in the bullseye of that Venn diagram. It's a triple win. There are literally no losers in this deal, and I think folks are are starting to realize that, and if nothing else, just by necessity, realizing, hey, if there's, you know, 100 BCM floating around out there that we could get to markets, we need to do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it it is it's it's one of those things don't let a don't let a tragedy go unwasted. And right. It's, right. It's unfortunate that that is what is sparking everybody's I guess ingenuity or or realization of the problem, but but that's what it is. All of a sudden we have a shortage of natural gas. Where can we get more? Oh, well, it turns out we're we're just letting this all go out into the atmosphere. That's right. We can get all these benefits. Yeah. So speaking of the benefit side of this, so we, I think everybody can look at the spot price whenever this drops and make that calculation of 40 BCMs, how much just rough value that is. I think there, there is a number in the report and, and projections on the value there. What about the CO2 savings though? Like what's the equivalent of, of CO2 abated here. Comes out to about 750 million tons of CO2 equivalent. Uh, but I think the thing to, 
to reemphasize there is is that unique um, way that that methane behaves in the atmosphere, right? So it you know it, methane molecules really matter. Matter reducing that methane um, takes an immediate bite out of the rate of warming. So. Um, you know, if we were to say abate 750 uh, million metric tons from, you know, closing down coal plants, let's say, versus that 40 BCM of methane, that 40 BCM is going to get you more near-term benefit than actually closing down those coal plants. And I'm not talking about don't let's don't close down coal plants, but but I just want to highlight the importance of methane um, to the atmospheric systems. On the on the monetary value, um, you know, this this is actually worth circling back to because one of the things that S and P emphasized in that report was that speed really matters here. So using their price projections for um, for natural gas, um, and I'm going off the top of my head here, but I want to say that they found that. Um, executing a project within the next year would be um, basically twice as profitable as executing one two years later because you know prices are expected to remain high through 2030 but they're also they are projected to sort of re-rationalize to a significant degree so the the, the faster you act um, the more that you can take advantage of that price arbitrage huh yeah, that is a that's an important point because oftentimes, for at least for many of the the larger scale equity investments, you are looking at a 10, 15 year timeline as far as this is how long this will be operating. So this is what we're looking at. Whereas right now and and hopefully the 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 war will will stop soon at some point, but. Yeah, it's uh, right now is very volatile. Yeah, and, and S and P looked at these um, these return numbers over a pretty short time frame. If I'm remembering correctly, they um, they looked at it through 2030. That was their time horizon for thinking wow. about return. So it's very quick. The other thing to be no- um, that comes into play here is of that that smaller increment, that 40 BCM that they said could be brought to market within a couple of years. Um, that could be done almost entirely through existing export capacity or, or, or export capacity that's either operating now and has some spare capacity in it or that is under construction. Um, one, of the, one of the caveats to that is in the U.S. where you know, there's a lot of new LNG export capacity that's going in in between now and 2025. Um, but according to um, to S&P's analysis, um, the gas capture potential in the United States, which is huge because there's so much gas being wasted in the United States, would um, potentially be in competition with projected growth in demand for the use for the availability of that new export capacity that's coming online. But globally speaking, it can largely be gotten to market through. Um, existing export capacity, um, which is part of why it can be done so quickly and so cheaply. That's not to say there wouldn't be other new infrastructure required. There would be new gathering infrastructure required, potentially some new midstream to get this flared gas to 
market and you know places like North Africa and elsewhere where there's um, uh, a lot of flare gas flaring happening um, but they actually have some slack in their export capacity to Europe right mm. um, but you know when, when we're talking about um, you know gathering uh, and takeaway infrastructure that's relatively cheap right I, you can th- that kind of infrastructure you can amortize over you know a decade yeah. roughly speaking as opposed to you know these larger projects you may am- be amortizing over 30 40 years yeah yeah exactly so i think you've done a great job explaining the some of those obvious questions that people would ask about well if it's flaring then we should it's flaring for a reason what are you talking about and all the other aspects. One thing that that I've been hearing a lot here with with what you're saying to me is we what I what's going on in my head is that okay, we need to build some infrastructure, we may need some pipelines, we may need some offtake agreements, and then we need to figure out or get this into LNG facilities to then export. To me, I guess what I'm hearing in my mind is permitting and regulation. What, from your perspective, are the the primary things that could be in the way if there's a company that says, "Okay, I'm going to do this tomorrow"? Yeah, let me let me circle back to that and hit another point that we haven't quite touched on yet. So I I like the way you framed that up. Um, the other key piece of this is um, the monitoring, right? Mm. So. We, we talked about um, flaring and why that often happens, um, but why are all these fugitive emissions happening, right? And often it's the case because nobody's looking for them, right? Mm-hmm. Now, five years ago, that was kind of expensive, right? And there weren't a lot of options, but over the last you know five plus years, there's been an, an explosion in monitoring technologies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people are now, I mean, there are so many more instruments and there are so many more ways of deploying them. And, and you've got companies that are setting up fence line monitors and putting monitors on drones. And so it is very cheap now to um, go out and survey sites and, and find those emissions and, um, you know, Make the make the fixes that are next necessary to capture them. So I just wanted to to make that point. Um, your question was about permitting, right? Yeah, so, I guess the 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 primary question is if there is a company that wants to say they are all in, they decide they want to start capturing everything they're losing and getting it onto the market. Yeah. What is the what are some of those Drivers or some of those hurdles that they're going to need to get across. Yeah, it's different in different parts of the world, right? So take the U.S. again. We know that um, in the U.S., um, permitting is a challenging process, right? And there's been a debate going on in Congress and going on right now about permitting reform. And, and uh, you know, um, our organization, my organization, EDF, has some thoughts on that. Um, we, we recognize the need to um, accelerate the pace of deployment of energy projects. When we're thinking about that, we're usually thinking about the, the need to be able to deploy clean energy projects more rapidly. At the same time, you know, you have to take into account 
um, the interests of and impacts to the people on the ground, right? And, and, and have a fulsome um, community input process um, and environmental review process. So, that, so it's, a, it's a complex issue, um, but it is ripe for reconsideration in the US. In other parts of the world, it's um, less of an issue. You know, in, in the S&P analysis, Ah, oh, gosh, I can't remember how many countries were looked at within those uh, six key regions, but I want to say it was maybe, you know, sort of on the order of 16 or 18 countries that were in these um, six regions. There are three of them, um, the U.S., Canada, and Australia, where, um, you know, the oil and gas production is a private sector endeavor of, of the sort we think of here in the U.S. The rest of the countries that we're talking about are places um, where the oil companies are nationally owned. They are extensions of the state, right? And they're also, they also happen to be in um, pr almost exclusively in developing and emerging economies. So if, uh, you know, the national oil company, the NOC, finds an opportunity to um, capture, capture gas, right? Capture the value of that gas, get it to market, get the return on that. And those returns for those national oil companies go to, go to support a broad range of, of government functions and, and public services, right? Permitting is really not gonna be the issue. They, can, they, they are part of the state, the state is part of them. They can just kind of decide to do it. You know, yeah. and, and not run into the um, um, same sort of processes that, that we have here in the U.S. And, and that they have in Canada and in Australia as well. Right. Okay. So that's, that's helpful to, to see and hear and, and think through. And I guess with that idea, what would be... So we've, we've got this quantified data for the leaks, for the flaring, for the venting, and ideas on, I guess, all of these kind of things would be laid out in the report, how potentially you could get all of that to market. I guess at this point, what would be the next steps? Like what, I guess a, another way to phrase this, like how the heck do we do it? Yeah. What is the call to action? What is yeah. the what are we advocating for here? How do we get this to market? Right. So what are the barriers, right? Um, would you go from country to country, you can find barriers and you will find barriers that are unique to, to that situation. You know, you may find um, commercial barrier or I should legal barriers the way, you know, um, concessions or or least um, you may have security issues that you're concerned about in a country. So there are some things, but the, there are really three things that are pretty uniformly the case across all of these countries. Again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna set the US, Canada, and Australia to the side, but when we look at the rest of these countries that um, where, where we have nationally owned oil companies in developing and emerging economies, um, and, and these are companies, again, that have special obligations to the national interests. So they have calls on their, on their revenues that, you know, um, private enterprise doesn't really have. Um, there are really three things 
um, uh, that need to be addressed. So the first is MRV, monitoring, reporting, and verification. And you can think of, about that as really kind of bookending the issue. So MRV is what's going to help you identify um, the problem and the opportunity on uh, the outs. Sorry, I got distracted by our, our <laughs> friends in the hallway there. MRV is what's going to help you find those leaks on the front end, right? Um, and so it's, it's a way to identify uh, the opportunity. And then on the back end, it's the way that you actually verify um, that uh, the gas has been captured, that emissions have gone down. You're also metering the gas, right? But from a climate perspective, this is how we identify that we're moving in the right direction. So there's MRV. Then the two other big things are finance, right? Um, figuring out how to finance these projects that have a um, lower rate of return than um, some of the alternatives that capital can be put to. Um, and probably in a lot of cases, finding ways to de-risk that capital, right? Because we're operating in environments where um, investors um, will have some concerns. So it's the finance question. And then the other piece of it is technical capacity, right? So um, in a lot of these places, um, we're talking about oil companies and energy ministries that are very early into this conversation, right? And haven't developed a lot of internal capacity yet. So we need to build a network of technical capacity that can help support that. And importantly, um, to help develop that capacity internally at these NOCs, right? Um, it's not just come in, do a project and leave. It's come in, partner with the company, help that company develop its own internal capacity so that it can continue to um, manage these emissions and um, capture these revenues for the long term. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it seeing those different specific points are are kind of sounds like that's what you need for every project to really understand the yeah. resource how are you going to fund the, the the extraction of the resource and then do you actually have a, a way to get that to market yeah and, and i'm sorry let me circle back because i set i set uh the u.s canada and australia off to the side right yes and the reason I did that is because they are not suffering the same um, constraints on capital. You know, you hear about, um, you, you know, Wall Street being um, more circumspect than it once yeah. was, and, and that's true, and, and shareholders are requiring more capital discipline, and that's true. But these are well-capitalized companies. They can do it, right? Um, you know, we've seen record profits over the last years. We've seen massive stock buybacks. These companies can um, certainly afford to make these investments, and they're, they're the most technically proficient companies in the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, we're talking about companies that can drill two miles down, five miles out, and hit something the size of a toaster. You know, they can, they can <laughs> yeah. stop a leak. Um, so that's, that's why I set those to the, to the side. They don't have those um, same sorts of barriers. And these are also countries where um, regulatory oversight is part of the social norm, part of how we, how we do life in this part of the world, right? And so really the first line of defense um, 
in in uh, the U.S., Canada, Australia is actually putting regulatory frameworks in place that require that this gas be captured rather than wasted. Hmm. Okay. Yep. I see how that would add that benefit. And I think that that one, one thought that there would be that natural question of like, why, if there's regulations that ultimately hurts overall production, potentially, if, if we're doing this at a four to five percent uh, return on investment, that's not as good as that next well we can drill. But I think there's yeah, you can do a you can do a regression analysis on you know states and countries and the implementation of um, regulations, and you will find no correlation whatsoever between production profits and regulate and you know mm-hmm. the imposition of new regulations. You know, you know, revenues follow price, right? Production yep. follows price. That's the way it works. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess the. To me, and and the the point that that I see, and I guess I'm trying to make, is that there's there's a level of of commentary there where you hear people saying, "Oh, well, we we're not making enough that the the shareholders are upset because of these numbers." But ultimately, if there's still a profit, there's still that opportunity, and eventually, the shareholders are saying, "No, we we do want." climate over over cash and i think that 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 conversation is there and i think we are in a bit of a push and pull and and i think the tides are changing where there is the energy trilemma and at some point it is going to be let's let's rise all the boats with the tide and have both climate and cash even if they're Ironically, we would want both of them to be a little bit smaller. We want to cool off the climate, and if it costs us a little extra cash, maybe that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, investors have become a really important voice in um, in the oil and gas methane conversation over the last several years, and it's not just um, activist in- investor groups. It's the big banks, right, who are... Um, uh, trying to figure out how to decarbonize their portfolios and reorient their um, uh, investment strategies uh, toward a world that um, is um, Paris compliant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's again, it's that difference between uh, short-term and long-term thinking. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well, with that, I think that's a good transition point to get into my final questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. Okay. That first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Oh my gosh. Um, well, my favorites tend to be, um, funny things, but I actually spend more time, um, reading history and philosophy right now. I have, uh, let's see, what do I have? Um, that's Thus spake Zarathustra is on the bedside table, Nietzsche, and uh, meditations by, uh, or the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. So that neither of which are really funny at all. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what. I just this isn't a favorite, but a, a book I just read that was um, both. It was fun, uh, fascinating, and also infuriating. It was Coyote America by Dan Flores. 
um, sort of a natural historian, and it's about the sort of the cultural and biological and political history of the coyote in America. Hmm. Fun read. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I will have to add that to the list. Here's a fun factoid from that one. Um, There is a coyote within one mile of every man, woman, and child in in America. They're everywhere. Wow. There's one within a mile of us here in downtown Houston right now. Probably a bunch. That is that is fascinating. If I were clever, I'd find some way to tie the resilience of the coyote into our conversation today, but <laughs> it's too early and I haven't had enough coffee for that yet. Yep, yep, absolutely. I understand that. But yeah, that's definitely an interesting book and, and almost would help. Reading that sounds like it would help frame that idea of... of how is how is the coyote doing so well in this ever changing environment and then how how can we relate and transfer some of that knowledge to ourselves yeah i mean i'm going to go ahead and try to do the tie in right <laughs> now the the thing about the coyote is um that when it's under st- stress, right? Because there's been a massive eradication effort that's been launched at the Coyote in America since the 1800s, right? Yeah. Tried everything, poison, hunting, everything, and it's actually still going on to a certain degree. And what they find with the Coyote is that when it's under stress, it has a number of adaptive responses that cause it to multiply and disperse. (laughs) <laughs> right? So if you go after coyotes, you get more coyotes is, is the bottom line. And there's there's probably some parallel in there that we could draw between, you know, the, the position we're in right now from a climate perspective and from an energy security perspective is, you know, what we need is a rapid adaptive response. Mm. That's yep. the best I could do on that. So. <laughs> that's That's a great point. So the next question is, when will we be net zero as a society? The climate scientists are telling us that we have to be net zero by 2050 in order to, um, you know, stay below two degrees increase, uh, two degrees Celsius increase compared to pre-industrial levels of temperature, right? And that beyond that, um, the impacts to humanity become increasingly severe. So that's that's the target, um, you know. In 2050s, creeping on us, creeping up on us quickly. Um, the folks who are are working on this around the planet really have started trying to reorient people toward 2030 timelines to figure out where we have to be just in the next several years. And on this topic of the day, um, what multiple analyses have found is that we can and need to reduce oil and gas methane emissions by a good 75 percent by 2030. And that, by the way, can all be done with um, with uh, technologies and practices that are broadly commercially available today um, under pre-war. Um, gas prices, the estimates were that about two-thirds of that 75% could be um, achieved at a profit, at a positive NPV. Um, at today's gas prices, or at least the gas prices of a few months ago before they started to drop off, 
uh, IEA was saying that virtually all of those reductions were um, MPV positive. Wow. That is interesting. And I, I will point out for the audience, and I, I appreciate that your, your answer here, not once did I hear, I think it was very fact-based and very on-brand for EDF being a fact, science-driven NGO. So I, I think it's very fitting. We like to cite our sources. <laughs> yeah. So the last question is now you actually get to ask me a question. Oh, I get to ask you a question. And I promise it won't, it won't end up being as, as fact-based and, and probably less neutral. Okay, so <laughs> off the top of my qu uh, head, the question is this. So you're here in Houston, right? But what I've noticed is that all of the biggest podcasters in the world have um, moved to Austin in the last year. That's where I live. Um, so, you know, I guess I shouldn't promote them, but, but, but <laughs> dozens of them. When are you going to move? When are you going to take your show to Austin is the question. That is a, it's an interesting question. I'm actually, so I am based in Dallas and... Ah and also on brand for the Energy Transition Solutions podcast, I almost prefer to do all of my podcasts remotely because that gives me the opportunity to talk to people like, like colleagues in geothermal who are over in Iceland, and then also talking to Canadian mining companies who are working actually in places like India or Indonesia and talking to basically everybody around the world about what they are doing to to expedite the energy transition so i get to talk to everybody it's kind of rare that i am actually in person recording but on austin i would really like to go to south by southwest and and austin city limits and kind of get both the entertainment industry's viewpoint on climate change and yep. decarbonizing uh entertainment and then also south by southwest is is kind of it is almost i would i don't know if this is a good comparison but it's like the cool version of a huge energy kind of uh conference yeah so that is it is almost like the agora across the way where everybody's talking about their new innovations except there it's it's a it's a much more laid back scene and and i would i would assume that everybody is really hyped up about talking about what they want to talk about you know that's um first of all that's a great analogy to the agora i like that um but but climate has become a big part of the conversation in south by um over the last i don't know 10 years or ish yeah. right back in the day when i first arrived to Austin in the early 90s it was it was a, just a music deal right and, yeah. you know you could go volunteer and you know work at a bar to taking tickets and then have a pass it ain't like that anymore but yeah. uh, I, I think you I think you could uh, generate a lot of um, interest and get some good guests there at South yeah. by yeah I think it could be and if really you want fun. music go to ACL yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah I think it could be really fun and get just a lot of a lot of different interesting ideas and that's one of the yeah. things i like most is looking at the broad spectrum having brand new startups that have this this 
for lack of a better term, like a crazy or wacky idea that that seems like it's maybe got a 25% shot of actually succeeding. But then seeing how excited they are and, and having them on the show, but then also going as far as, as major incumbent uh, energy companies who want to talk about how they are increasing their efficiencies and and maybe soon have somebody on who is talking about the methane that they're abating and the leakages that they're stopping because of the impact that that has to the energy transition. So yeah, that'd be great. It's fun to have all of those people on. Well, hey, before we go, let me just thank you. I uh, really appreciate you inviting uh, EDF to be on and uh, talk about these issues. They're really important and appreciate you giving them some airtime. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And usually I, I ask if there's anything else you'd like to say. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? You I think have... that was it. Okay. All right. So thank you again, Matt, for being on the show. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you'd like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing. I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to fill out. The link is in the show notes. Please go fill it out. And if you do, we can send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, find me, send me an email, or connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low-carbon and high-energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.